Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 97. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so lovely to have your company. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. Your support is very much appreciated. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website www.onthetutortrail.com or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron only monthly giveaways. January's prize is a copy of Rebecca Monet's beautiful Anne Boleyn paper doll colouring book and a one-month membership to the highest tier of Inside Hever Castle, a new online subscription that allows you to explore this historic property from the comfort of your home. If you've been considering supporting the work I do, then this is the perfect time to join. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Elizabeth I's lost prayer book is William Aslett. William read history at Somerville College, University of Oxford. He wrote his master's dissertation on the life and works of the 18th century architect James Gibbs at Peterhouse, University of Cambridge, where he's currently researching a PhD on the same topic. He has published both on 18th century British architectural history and on the 16th century portrait miniature, including a 2019 publication on the newly discovered portrait of King Henry III of France by Nicholas Hilliard. I encourage you to listen all the way to the end of this episode because just hours after I chatted with William, some new and very exciting information regarding Elizabeth's prayer book came to light thanks to the help of the brilliant Dr. Owen Emerson and Alison Palmer from Hever Castle. I invited Owen back onto the show to help me tell the story. This edition comes straight after my chat with William. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thank you. 
welcome to Talking Tudors. William, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Probably a good place to start is by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Yes. So I'm William Aslett. I'm a PhD student at University of Cambridge. I'm working on a PhD, not in the Tudor period, sadly, but in uh, I, I look at an 18th century British architect. And so I'm, I, I look at architecture rather than paintings. But um, I think my, my, my uh, interest in the Tudors began when I was at university. I was at the University of Oxford where I read history and I did quite a lot of my papers there on the early early modern period and that was something that started my interest. I then went to Cambridge where I did my MPhil and that's where I've ended up kicking around for some time now. Fantastic. Now a few months ago I happened to come across an excellent paper that you wrote about Elizabeth I's prayer book probably, we think, illustrated by Nicholas Hilliard, but since lost, unfortunately. So when did you first come across this intriguing item? Well, it was actually part of some research that I was doing for uh, another paper that I published with a couple of other colleagues, one of whom, Emma Rutherford, is an alumna of this distinguished podcast. But we, yeah, it was that, that, that was looking at a lost or recently rediscovered miniature by Nicholas Hilliard of the French king, Henry III, who uh, was the older brother of one of the sitters in the portraits of this prayer book. And uh, I thought this was a really intriguing thing. And well, it's, it's now it's now been lost. And because of the fact that it, we don't know where it is, uh, nobody had really sort of got to grips with it properly. So... Um, I, I thought that uh, there was something to be said there. So before we talk about its mysterious disappearance, could you tell us a little bit about its appearance and its contents and its association with Hilliard as well? Yeah, of course. So it was, it was this intriguing, uh, you, you, you know, amazing uh, book. Everyone, everyone who saw it before it disappeared said that it was the most wonderful thing. It was a book, it was about two by three inches, so it was sort of small enough to hold in the palm of your hand. If a scholar called Diana Scarisbrick is right, it was... Uh, probably it had probably been rebound uh, sorry I'm, I'm inferring this from what uh, she said because when it was last whereabouts was last known it was bound in black chagrin with little enameled clasps embellished with rubies but she points out that there's a book with, with which matches the description which appears in a list of a sort of inventory which is described as having been made of gold with clasps garnished all over with diamonds and rubies and this is what you would expect of a kind of book which was called a girdle book which uh so called because elizabethan ladies would wear these tiny little miniature books uh on gold chains or sort of velvet ropes which were attached to the waist at the, the girdle so it was probably that given the size and the materials it if you opened, opened it up uh, the first thing you would have seen would have been a portrait of Duke d'Anjou Francois who was Elizabeth's suitor and uh, the younger brother of the French king Henri III Henry III and flicking through it you would have gone through six prayers written in five different languages uh, the first was in English and the medal prayer were in French, Italian, Latin and Greek and then the last was in English and then at the end uh, it would have closed with uh, another portrait of Queen Elizabeth and the prayers 
purport to have been written by Queen Elizabeth. They speak in uh, her first, in her personal voice. One of them opens by saying, you know, drawing drawing my blood from kings. So it's clear that it's somebody who is trying to think, or at least claim to think, as Elizabeth would have thought. But recent scholars, notably Henry Woodhausen, have pointed out that the handwriting isn't hers and is strangely very similar to that of a Cambridge scholar who uh, was only a recent graduate at this time and quite why he might have been involved in a book like this isn't uh, entirely clear. He did go on to have a nice career, uh, an important career, but uh, at this time he was only very young, so it's not quite clear. But the connection with Hilliard is that Nicholas Hilliard probably, we can't be certain because this thing hasn't been seen since the late 19th century, painted the portraits within it. And looking at the uh, surviving reproduction, they look pretty jolly likely that they're by him. And all of the descriptions that we know from the time show that they match what we would expect portraits by Nicholas Hilliard to look like. Fabulous. Even I, I'm just thinking to myself, even if Elizabeth didn't author the poems, it's just impressive that she was able to read them in so many different languages. Mm. No, exactly. She, she'd had a you know serious education and she was conversant in all the modern European languages, but also classical languages too. You've mentioned, obviously, the miniatures that were in this prayer book of the Duke of Anjou and Elizabeth I. Could you tell us about what these miniatures actually tell us about the negotiations that were happening around that time? Yes, yeah, of course. So I think I might I might just begin by talking a little bit about what they actually look like, because I, I, I need to touch on briefly, but they're, they're enclosed in in oval frames, which are wreaths of uh, wreaths decorated with uh, roses, which your, cl- your listeners will certainly know were Tudor emblems. And according to descriptions, they were set in, in pages on gold backgrounds decorated with fleur-de-lis, which were, of course, the symbols of the the heraldic device of the French monarchy. But they were also, at this date, used by Elizabeth I, who still had a claim to lands in France, and to having a claim to the French throne itself. The English, English monarchs didn't give that up until quite late. The portraits are at opposite ends of the book, and the sitters are facing uh, the same way. So in art historical terms, we would call that a quasi-pair, because uh, a proper pair in this period shows the sitters facing towards each other, as though they're looking at each other. The Duke himself, he he's the, the first portrait, the portrait at the start. He wears um, a black doublet with a cloak probably slung over his shoulder, which was uh, very fashionable in France. Black was also a very in colour. The king, Henry III, who cared a lot about his personal appearance, especially the way that he dressed, uh, wore basically only black in his portraits in the 1580s. So, so, so Anjou is very much in step with fashion there. He's also wearing a massive ruff, which had come into fashion at the end of 1578, which was termed by one wag uh, a plateau de Saint-Jean, the plate of Saint-Jean, because it made made the wearer look like his head had been served up on a plate. And he's not wearing very much jewellery. Men in France at this time tended to wear earrings, for instance, but he has only got a hat on, which uh, was called a toque à la Polonaise. It was something that, it was, it was a, a Polish fashion that Henry III 
Poland had brought back with him because he's he'd been elected king of Poland, but he spent a very brief time there. But he was a fashion he'd introduced, and it was in, a, a jewel. The only jewel that he wears sits in the hat. And then Elizabeth at the end, she's also wearing black, but it's it's a dress. I mean, your listeners can bring to mind something like the ermine portrait, where where the the, the dress is covered all over with pearls and things and she's wearing uh, great clusters of pearls at the neck and a great big jewel at the bottom of her v-neck gown and two necklaces a tiara in the hair and so the the v-neck is quite unusual because that was probably was it was fashionable in Italy. You don't see Elizabeth wearing something like this in another portrait. And as it looks like she's wearing a sort of standing ruff, which again was an Italian fashion at this time, but later in the period came to be associated with Marie de Medici, who was the wife of Henry IV, the next King of France. But Elizabeth's dress probably had a context in the marriage negotiations. Everything that she wore, um, particularly the nationality whose fashions she was wearing was closely observed by people at court so so for instance in i think it was uh, 1582 her portrait as part of these negotiations was sent to uh, to the french court and anjou's mother the widow of henry ii catherine de medici noticed that elizabeth was wearing a french gown and that was seen to be a great sign about her likely intentions uh, vis-a-vis the courtship. Oh yeah, finally on Elizabeth, one one viewer lucky enough to see the book uh, before it disappears, uh, describes a rose in her curly yellow-brown hair and the jewels themselves were done. He describes them as being gilded, which is what we would expect from uh, Hilliard's practice because he tended, he had a particular way for doing jewels which involved laying down some gold leaf and applying a little tiny blob of a resin on top. But I guess I guess I could say something about you know you know the history of the the, the courtship. Obviously, this was you know for a long time Elizabeth had it was assumed that she was going to marry. It wasn't until sort of after the fact that she began to be thought of as the Virgin Queen. At this time, people very much expected her to marry, but just who she should marry was obviously a very it was a very contentious issue it divided a lot of people at court and one possible match was with the sons of uh, Henry II and Anjou wasn't actually the first of these sons to be considered for her hand the first was Henry his older brother but that negotiation collapsed in the end really because of Henry's religion Henry was actually quite a devout catholic and this was this was a problem that Elizabeth constantly faced with the matches and it's one of the reasons that she never married it, it was exactly how do you do you make sure that you're marrying in a way that respects a reformed religion, particularly when any of the most powerful heads of state at this time, male heads of state, were Roman Catholics. And France in the 1570s was just being divided by the wars of re- religion. And um, 1572, which was when Anjou was proposed by his mother as a possible match for Elizabeth was the year of the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre, which shocked viewers in England because it involved a 
pretty brutal and bloodthirsty massacre of Protestants in the streets of Paris. So anyway, that's that's the background to the the early history of the match. But Anjou was really Elizabeth's last gamble when it came to to marriage, because by this point she was getting older. I mean, there there was a there was a horrible age difference between them of uh, 22 years. So 1572, Elizabeth was already. 39 uh, and Anjou was 17 so it would have been a it would have been a very unequally balanced match but you, you know I think people in this period could could uh, look beyond this seeing the survival of the state as being the utmost priority it's also the fact that Anjou was said to have been terribly pockmarked uh, he had smallpox as a young boy so you know Elizabeth wasn't entirely sure that that was the kind of chap she wanted to be married but he was also probably her most serious suitor and even though they had a period which strangely enough coincides with the period that Hilliard went to France which is something I should have mentioned earlier which is that Hilliard wasn't just employed I'm, I'm sure your listeners will know that Hilliard was uh, Elizabeth first personal limner but uh, or miniaturist limner being the language of the time he also worked for the Duke of Anjou in his own capacity In 1576, he went to France and he left probably at the end of 1578 to return to England. But he actually appears in the Duke of Anjou's accounts as having been employed by him. And this is probably because the Duke was always, he was always, he had this, he he was the heir to the throne. Henry didn't have any male children and he was trying to build a power base of his own um, in rival to his brother. And for that reason, he tended to favour Protestants. He used them because his brother was very Catholic. Anjou used Protestants to gain political leverage against his brother. And this was the political background to the considerations that Elizabeth might marry him, because, of course, nobody, or most people in this time, didn't marry for love. It was as much for politics as well, and that was certainly true of Elizabeth. His prayer book was probably made around the high point of the negotiations. So Anjou, I think, was the only one of Elizabeth's foreign suitors to actually go and visit her in person. Uh, and just after Hilliard came back to England, he made the first of two visits to Elizabeth. And this was the point at which the marriage was most likely because the, the discussions were conducted entirely in secret. Nobody was to know and seemed pretty serious. He was only there for two weeks, but but um, the court was discussing it very seriously at this time. And the court divided between those who supported it, the match, and those who, who didn't. And in the end, it was also the year in which it became clear that it couldn't happen because once the news did escape, that there was a very high chance that this thing might come off. There was a lot of popular outrage, particularly because over the religious question, because many of Elizabeth's subjects could remember what it was like with her half-sister, Queen Mary, who had married Philip II of Spain, who hadn't given any real attention to England. And it wasn't seen as, you know, being a good thing for a queen to be married with such a sort of serious head of state who would probably who would probably be thinking of his own affairs way ahead of anything to do with England. And pamphlets published about this. Uh, one, one pamphlet by a guy called John Stubbs was enraged uh, Elizabeth so badly that he had his hand cut off, his right hand cut off for having dared to comment on, on the Queen's potential husband. So there's a scholar who identified this book as being a gift that was given 
in the new year of 1582, which I think is the date it was probably made. And that was the time of the Duke of Anjou's second visit. And by this time, it was getting clear that the marriage couldn't really happen because Elizabeth was too old. She was in, from the point of view of having children, she was by then in her late 40s. And and even, even observers in other courts in Europe didn't think this was going to happen. Again, the background to this was religion, because the Duke of Anjou at this time wanted, he was looking to fight on the behalf of territories in the Netherlands against the against the Spanish, who were Roman Catholics, obviously, uh, governing, governing the Netherlands. And he wanted more money out of Elizabeth. Elizabeth had already given him a lot, lot of money for the campaign, again, you know, to support the Protestant cause, and he wanted more money. Elizabeth, for her part, wanted to get money from the King of France, Henry III, to support this campaign. And Henry III was only going to give money if he thought that his brother might make this powerful match. So it was all, it was in everybody's interest to really play up the courtship, even though everyone knew it was probably not going to happen at this point. Everyone wanted to look like it was going to happen. So you've got these very extravagant displays of sort of courtly romance. One famous incident was when it was when Elizabeth in public kissed Anjou in the mouth and told him that she was going to marry him. They exchanged rings. She said it very loudly, by the way, so that, uh, you know, all the observers who were going to report back to the King of France could hear. But uh, the very next day, she changed her mind, uh, conveniently when all the messengers had gone off to the French court. She was always very astute at balancing her suitors and, you know, making making them think that she was about to agree to their proposals. But um, yes, yeah, so it was, it was in this context, I think, this was executed, and particularly the new year of 1582, which is when I think this book was probably given to Elizabeth by the Duke of Leicester. That was the sort of the most point at which these, this courtly romance aspect was the most pronounced. There was sort of songs commissioned by William Byrd and John Dowland, uh, famous court musicians, and there was a tilt, a sort of joust with uh, elaborate sets and people performing allegorical roles, and that was uh, inaugurated by Anjou himself. When he left, he left in February, he arrived in just at the end of October. Elizabeth even wrote a sonnet on uh, Monsieur's departure, but then also at the time, people in the court were commissioning, it wasn't just Leicester, but other members of the court were commissioning things, jewels with uh, shaped like frogs, because um, Elizabeth's pet name for Anjou was my frog, because uh, unfortunately, Anjou hadn't scored too highly in the looks department, but it was it was a pet name. Uh, Elizabeth liked to have pet names for people, and uh, frog was her pet name for Anjou. These jewels sometimes had little portraits inside them and uh, many of them probably would have been done by Hilliard like this book. That's fantastic thank you that helps us really understand the the, you know the the context at the time. So there was obviously quite a lot that's remarkable about this book and you've already talked about some of those things like a Protestant prayer book containing you know a portrait of a Catholic suitor is one of them but also I think some people might find it surprising that you just mentioned that it was in fact probably commissioned by Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. So he'd been, you know, a known opponent to the match at the time of Anjou's first visit. But as you've said, you know, people had vested interests for different reasons. So why would Robert Dudley, who once had hopes of himself marrying um, Elizabeth, commission such a book, do you think? It's a really interesting question. 
of my personal theory is that it was in the context of these of these marriage negotiations and also on Lester's views when it when it came to religion because he been one of the figures around whom opposition to the match had coalesced at the time of Anjou's first visit and there were a number of publications pamphlets that were issued around this time that were um associated with Lester and his circle. And one of them was by Philip Sidney, the famous poet. And it was a letter to Queen Elizabeth, basically trying to persuade her to, you know, be true to the to the Protestant faith, not to go with this match. Also, I mean, the time of the first visit was pretty tense in terms of personal relations between Elizabeth and Lester, because they'd known, as I'm sure your listeners know, they'd known each other since childhood. Uh, Lester said on one occasion that they'd known each other since they were eight years old. And as you say, there was talk at one time that the two of them were going to marry. There was even, there were even rumours, not unfounded rumours, that Lester might have killed his first wife in 1560 in order to clear the way for this potential match. But in 1578, basically tired of waiting for Elizabeth and also looking to Sarah Lyne, Lester married again, married Lettuce Knollys, oh, Knowles rather. And I was in 5th September 1578 the next year. And I was done entirely in secret because he knew that Elizabeth was going to be really mad if she found out. And uh, when she did find out, she was mad and he had to leave court for a period. And that was about the same time that he was, the people around him certainly were beginning to uh, oppose the match on one of the grounds being religion. But in 1581 to 82, as I said, when the time of the second match, it had become quite unlikely that it was going to take place, as I mentioned. And so I think Lester's priorities kind of changed because at that point he was looking towards the campaign in the Netherlands, which he was then very closely, closely involved with. I think he wanted to support these marriage negotiations, again, even though they were unlikely to happen for the reason that you say, for vested interest. His own personal interest was in leaving Anjou in the best position that he could be in uh, for this campaign in the Netherlands. So the two of them actually became very good friends, uh, surprisingly. But they became such good friends that Thomas Radcliffe, the third Earl of uh, Sussex, got jealous and it was said that just after the new year they were only prevented from physically fighting by um, the personal intervention of Elizabeth so it's quite a surprising turnaround for somebody who'd been the sort of the known opponent to this match and also you know he he might personally have felt torn about it too and so but I, I think he commissioned this book Protestant Prayers to sort of support the match but also to remind Elizabeth of her duties as a, a Protestant queen to remind her of the religion so it's sort of both supporting the match but also it's got this sort of other message and there could have been no better person to choose to work on such a book as Hilliard because here Hilliard not only could he technically do it all he'd been trained as a goldsmith before becoming a miniaturist so he could do the physical book itself as well as the portraits within it and he'd, he'd done Elizabeth Goldring has discovered that he'd done another book of this kind early on for the Duke of Leicester or at least something that sounds like it would have been similar we don't have the book but it sounds like they were similar he would often sort of encode 
messages into his miniatures. There were sometimes little mottos in the miniatures called Impreze, which were mottos of personal significance to the sitter that would have been that would have been understood only by the person who was receiving it. And so he was he was he knew how to encode messages and things in a very subtle way. And Lester had made long and frequent use of Hilliard's services before this point. He was really Hilliard's earliest patron, introducing him to Queen Elizabeth. And he was he, he would have realised the pen- potential that miniatures held for expressing these kinds of, you, you know, multiple and subtle messages at the same time. So you've talked a little bit about Dudley's motivation for commissioning the book. How do you think Elizabeth would have received it or how would she have interpreted it? Would that have matched or not? I mean, I think that's such a brilliant question. I really couldn't say because, I mean, of course, as I mentioned, it had only come a couple of years after she had, you know, basically flipped out at his um, second marriage. And, you know, they did have this history. And for him to have been supporting the match, you know, I think could have been quite a sort of seen as quite a conciliatory gesture. And it's important to note, by the way, that this would have been quite a private thing. You know, it's not clear who else would have seen it. Certainly when it turns up in, I mean, the reason that we're in uncertain, there's a degree of uncertainty that it was this gift given to her on New Year's Day of 1582 was that if the contents weren't described, and that's because, you know, it wouldn't have been opened, she might have opened it. But there wouldn't have been very many people who actually knew what was inside. So Lester would have known, Hilliard, who worked for both Lester and Elizabeth, would have known, and she would have known, and potentially not that many other people. So it would have been personal as much as political. It's possible that she was touched by the gesture, but I don't think it could have been straightforward given all that had gone between them. Yeah, no, that's a good answer and and a really good point that you bring up about the fact that, you know, this book was a private personal item, the same as miniatures as we know. I think sometimes we get this idea that miniatures and the the little prayer books were kind of displayed for all to see or that they were commissioned thinking that we'd be talking about the 500 years in the future. But they were, of course, very personal private items. And Elizabeth did have a a grand collection of miniatures that she she kept, you know, in her her chamber and showed them only on special occasions. So I think that's a fantastic fantastic point to make. So let's talk a little bit about the provenance of the manuscript. So after obviously Elizabeth dies in 1603, what happens to it after there? Do we know? Based on records stating the provenance, but that I haven't been able to corroborate with sort of archival sources, but you know, if they're to believe, it remained in the Royal Collection, it seems. Because as I mentioned, Diana Scarisbrick identified it with this book of gold that's described in a inventory of the collect- jewellery collection of Queen Anne of Denmark in 1606 to 1607. And it seems there is actually a pretty decent chance of this being the, the prayer book, because it's described as having the picture of Queen Elizabeth and of Monsieur, i.e. Anjou, with a book of prayers written in parchment. So that sort of, as descriptions go, you couldn't get anything that matched this book more closely. So if that's right, if that's the same book, it had stayed in the royal collection. Uh, Anne of Denmark, of course, was the wife of uh, James I. It then is said to have gone with King James II when he was ousted by the Glorious Revolution with him to France 
where he gave it to his illegitimate son, the Duke of Berwick. After that, it somehow went to England. This is where the provenance is a bit sort of uncertain. It went to England somehow. It might have gone into the collection of Horace Walpole, the great 18th century tastemaker who had a very interested in Hilliard and Elizabethan portrait miniatures and who had an excellent collection at his Gothic style house at Strawberry Hill in Twickenham. But I couldn't actually corroborate this with the inventories of his collection. His collection is pretty well documented, but it's possible he owned it at some point. It then went, well, certainly was in the possession of Margaret Bentinck, who was uh, the Duchess of Portland, uh, the 18th century Duchess, who was a really extraordinary lady. She was blue stocking and she had um, an enormous collection her natural history collection was said was was the largest in the country at that time and she wanted to have a example of every species that there was in her collection so she had a really sort of she was interested in all kinds of curios and things and she definitely owned this book because it turned up in her sale in 1786 where it was bought by no lesser figure than Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of George III, and she bought it for um, £106 and one shilling. And again, the provenance gets slightly hazy here because you're taking it because we're taking it on what has been uh, repeated and as, as fact but she's said to have given it to one of her ladies in waiting who then gave it to uh, a lady who became the dowager duchess of leeds and then certainly it appeared in a bond street gallery in 1885 on sale and then things come into focus again because the next year it was showed to queen victoria whether it amused her or not uh, isn't clear, but it was shown to her by a guy called Edward Joseph, who was a prominent miniature collector who had quite an extensive collection. Given that he was described in contemporary sources as having it shown it to her, there's a chance that he owned it at that point. It then definitely went to Geoffrey Whitehead. It's not clear exactly when, but he was, again, an extremely well-known collector of portrait miniatures, had probably the best collection there was uh, in England, and he was the last known owner. There the trail goes totally dead. It was commented on in the press and things, but we don't know what happened to it after that. Considering that it's obviously been lost for quite some time, how is it that we know so much about its appearance? Is that just from yeah. written records? No, no. So Whitehead thought this thing was so extraordinary and everyone who saw it said that it was really amazing. And it was thought at the time by, you know, people who, who cared about these things to have been one of the outstanding artefacts of the Elizabethan age. So he, he made a facsimile reproduction, thankfully, which is a blessing to historians, in autotype, which is an electric reproduction process. Apparently, 40, 40 copies of this were made. They were sort of expensive looking things. They were printed on, on vellum, which is what the prayers were written on to sort of replicate the sort of material feel of the manuscript and there's a note inside the copy in the British Library which is to my knowledge the only the only copy that whose whereabouts is actually known right. I know that I know that shortly after even I think about 20 or so years after they were made in 1893 somebody reports that of the 40 he could only identify four copies uh, currently, I'm only aware of one, but um, there's some information about it. Again, like, uh, I couldn't emphasize enough how highly this thing was valued because um, 
when it went on sale in back in 1885 uh, and that Bond Street Gallery, its exhibition was reported in the New York Times. So, so people all over the world wanted to to hear about this thing. So, which is why it's so strange that it's vanished. It is so strange. I just keep thinking that it must be in somebody's house somewhere. Can everyone go out and look, please? I, 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 I believe, can't imagine yeah. that it. Yeah, it couldn't have been destroyed. I don't imagine that someone would have destroyed it so it must be in a private collection somewhere just before I ask you what you think actually happened to it can you tell us so when was the 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 final sort of recorded appearance that this particular manuscript made yeah so so the um the last time it appeared was at an exhibition at something called the Burlington Fine Arts Club in 1889 so it was there with a whole load of uh, Vasa other things some of them had been lent by prominent collectors and this this is how we're sure that it was owned by Jeffrey Whitehead because it was stated as having been lent by him and again it was commented on in the press as being one of the you know one of the stars of the show this was uh, if you go to this exhibition this is one of the things you've got to see but we know as I said in 1893 it must have been well people knew where it was because this reproduction was made of it but after that nothing. All right so what do you think has happened to this remarkable object? Really don't know, honestly. It's amazing how things can turn up again. But uh, I mean, I guess the thing is that this very rug is literally small enough to fall down the back of a sofa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sure. if you uh, if you just mislay it, it, you might not be able to find it again for a very long time. It does seem, as you say, unlikely that it might have been destroyed because, as I said, it was taken out of its original binding. It had already been taken out of its original binding, so it wasn't covered in the diamonds and the rubies as it originally was. And I guess the greatest value would have been well, in the book itself, but aside from that, in in the portraits of Elizabeth and Anjou. So I don't, I don't see why anyone would actually have destroyed it. It doesn't appear that there are several sales that were known of Whitehead's collection after he died in 1905, if memory serves. But, but again, it doesn't show up in those. And his daughter, who was interviewed by somebody who was interested in this thing in, I think it was 1922 that he wrote this book said that she had no idea where it was you know things do turn up again you, you know there was a, the painting in we now uh, think to be a Caravaggio that turned up in an attic in Toulouse a couple of years ago so um maybe yeah. it's still out there I, love I hope those so stories. anyway yeah I do yes yeah, they I, do I. they just give me hope that there's so much out there that we you know we haven't yeah exactly covered yet just I just mentioned that things do randomly turn up because um the portrait of Henry III that we looked at that did just turn up. We don't know where it came from because it's not known, but or anything about the object other than the fact that it turned up, it's here and it's the real thing. So, um, yeah, funny world. It is a funny world. And even just the copies, like I imagine that a lot of those copies are floating around yeah. somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, you know, two exactly. Two things for us to look for at our garage sales, yards. Yeah, sales. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, William, one of the last things we do on episodes of Talking Tutors is what I call a game of 10 to go. So these are just 10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So are you ready to do that? Yes, I am. (laughs) Great. So first one, nice and easy. What was one of your favourite childhood toys? You you know, it's it's funny how the most easy questions can be the most (laughs) difficult. I had a, I can't give you a toy because it's not coming to to my mind, but I did have a sailor's cap, which I was very attached to. Oh, and uh, I learned, yeah, <laughs> a little, a little 
peak sort of sailor's cap with a gold thing. So, love yeah. it, love it. And what about a book that you wish everyone would read? What might that be? I, I might go for a, a cheesy answer and say Nicholas Hilliard's Book of Limning. There's uh, the oh. book he did about his practice as a miniaturist. There's yeah. lots of interesting stuff in there about how you made mini- portrait miniatures. Yeah, actually, Emma mentioned, Emma Rutherford mentioned that on when I was chatting to her, and I've been meaning to read it since then. I still haven't gotten to it. She she mentioned um, a very lovely scene where he described being outdoors, I think, with Elizabeth, and they were doing one of the sketches, which I loved, yeah. absolutely loved. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right. So do you binge watch shows at all, William? I'm not I'm not a big binge watcher but I do occasionally watch things I'm like I'm a, I'm a slow watcher I watch a like slow. an episode a night but I, I did I did watch Queen's Gambit recently which everyone was talking about at one of those lockdown shows which was just pretty good I'm now I'm now watching Bridgerton which I'm I'm less sold by but yes but I've heard fun. mixed mixed reviews about that one yeah. but definitely Queen's Gambit I've heard lots of people yeah, saying they stayed up all night great. watching you know all the episodes yeah yeah it? yeah yeah, what about a new skill that you'd like to learn? I'd love to learn how to paint. That would be that would be that would be great. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Or, or, and... or to become a professional opera singer, one of the two. Oh wow, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like fun. And what is a favorite comfort food for you? Pasta. Yeah, I think of... most people kind of like a nice pasta. Yeah. That. Any music... description? Yeah, that's right. What music do you like to listen to? Old, old school stuff, classical music, uh, operas and big 19th century symphonic music. Fantastic. And what is your favourite season and why? I'm going to say autumn. I love the the light you get it's very and the the, the colors of of the leaves on the trees and I like the, the, the crispness of the air but it's not sort of properly cold yet. Yeah, I think it's actually a lovely season everywhere, which is nice. I tend to travel a lot when it's autumn, wherever mm-hmm. I'm going, yeah. which is really nice. And what's an item that's on your bucket list? At this point, probably leave the country and go <laughs> go abroad again. But I think lockdown has changed my priorities a bit. I'd be I'd be quite happy to do some quite ordinary things again. Go yeah. to the pub, that would be on my bucket list. What's a movie that you've watched more than once? The Third Man. Yeah, I love that film. And it's got some amazing on-location shooting in Vienna just after the Second World War. I think it was made in 1947. And they shot it on location. Amazing scenes of piles of rubble in Vienna and things. It's very atmospheric. Great performances too. That sounds good. And lucky last, what is something that you learned or are still learning from 2020, the year that we just had? I've learned to be happier with less and with doing fewer things, moving around less, and just sort of learned to really appreciate where I live, which is Cambridge, and it's lovely and beautiful. And yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's something I learned. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely has forced us to I slow didn't down, get, hey? Yeah, no, so I didn't get a new skill or anything. Some people learned to do yes. crazy things. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't yeah, I get a new hobby. And very last thing, last thing, it's the Tudor takeaway. So I always ask my guests for something, a recommendation for our listeners to, to watch something, listen, read something after the show. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? 
Yeah, well, I was, I was going to suggest, because I mentioned I'm, I'm based in Cambridge, I was going to suggest a virtual tour because we can't, I, I can't, we can't travel. I wanted, I wanted to, to suggest a building that your listeners could go and see. But I think that actually the, there's a virtual tour online of King's College Chapel, which the screen of which well, it was, it was finished by Henry VII. And then there's a beautiful wooden Renaissance, extraordinary screen. She was commissioned by Henry VIII and it's got his monogram and that of Anne Boleyn in it. But I actually checked this before I suggested it and it seems to have broken. So... Yeah, exactly. But maybe maybe it'll fix itself. But it was great because it's a great way of exploring a building that we can't visit right now. Failing that, I'd tell your listeners all to listen to Them in Allium by Thomas Tallis. Amazing 40 parts choral piece, a 40 parts uh, polyphony. Uh, it's really beautiful, extraordinary. And ideally get one sung by the King's College Choir and then you can combine the two. Yeah, that sounds really good for a nice cosy night at home that we're having more of at the moment. So. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> well, William, thank you so much. This has been so great. I've learned so much about an object that, to be honest with you, I had no idea had ever existed until I came across you and your paper. So thank you so much. Thanks for talking tutors with me. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Hello again, everyone. Just hours after my conversation with William Aslett, some new and very exciting information about the prayer book that once belonged to Elizabeth came to light. And I'd very much like to share this with you. So to help me tell this pretty incredible story, I've invited my friend, Dr. Owen Emerson, Castle Supervisor at the glorious Hever Castle, back to the show. So hello, Owen. Hello, Natalie. It's lovely to talk to you again. Yes, thank you so much. Always lovely to see you and speak with you. So I'm just going to give a little bit of backstory, Owen, before I ask you some questions about what happened for our lovely listeners. Basically, after I spoke to William, I was chatting with Owen, as we usually do, sending messages to each other about various things. And I happened to mention that I just recorded a really great episode about a prayer book that once belonged to Elizabeth I. And I was telling Owen how amazing this, this book was, and also how happened to mention that we hadn't seen it since the start of the 20th century. Just to remind you, I know you've all just listened to the episode, but just to remind you, the last time it was in an exhibition was in the late 1800s, 1898, I think it was from memory. And there were 40 copies made of the prayer book, which is how we have all this great information about it. But only one is currently known at the moment, and that's at the British Library. And inside that one copy, there was a little handwritten note And it said that it was last exhibited at the Fine Arts Society in 1902. But nothing was really, there's not much information about that exhibition. So I was just telling Owen about this great conversation. And he happened to ask, what did you ask me, Owen? What did you say? (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, as soon as you mentioned it, my uh, interest was piqued immediately. And I asked you, I believe, if the book had gold clasps set with rubies uh, to which you quite astonishingly said yes so my interest then was even more piqued so I contacted our incredible curator Alison Palmer uh, to ask her if she had any more details on the book that we once owned and um, that bore some similarity to to what Natalie had described to me and she came back with the following entry in our black ledger which indicates to us at Hever that Asta made that purchase of the book 
shortly before completing the sale for Hever Castle. So around 1902 to 1903. And would you like me to read what the ledger said? Absolutely. Yes, please. Fantastic. So it's an entry and it's, uh, and I quote, Davis, £1,000, Queen Elizabeth's prayer book, six prayers composed and written by the Queen, two in English, one Latin, one Greek, one Italian, one French, miniatures Duke de Alisson and the Queen by Hilliard. Unbelievable. And I almost fell <laughs> off my seat at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. So we got the correct number of prayers in the correct languages with the claim of Elizabeth's authorship of those prayers and with two miniatures of Anjou and Elizabeth by Hilliard. And of which course, was incredible that the, the note in the British Library copy says that it had last been sort of seen in 1902, that exhibition. And then suddenly we have a record of Astor purchasing in probably around 1903 when he's finalising the sale, the purchase of Hever Castle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's quite astonishing. And, uh, and then Alison contacted me with the following information from our ledger uh, which is an inventory taken in 1919. So that's just upon the death of William Wardorf Astor, who purchased the book initially. And that reads, and I quote, Queen Elizabeth's prayer book in leather binding with enamel gold clasps set with rubies, the interiors of the covers set with miniatures of the Duke de Alençon and Queen Elizabeth wearing richly embroidered costumes on ultramarine backgrounds, the miniatures by Nicholas Hilliard. So even more specificity about the, the blue background of these uh, portraits and just again confirming the location of the, the paintings in the, in the covers. So one at the front, one at the back, which again, all chimes, doesn't it? It's Absolutely quite astonishing. astonishing that it, we were just having a casual conversation and happened to locate a lost item there. Unfortunately, I know people must be getting really excited thinking that this particular item is still at Hever Castle, but we, we have a little bit of sad news, don't we, Alman? We do. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, it is no longer with us. And the story of how it left Hever is quite as astonishing as the, the item itself and the discovery that we just happened to have it after our conversation. Um, so, yes, it was it was during the early austere post-war years that Hever was actually subject to such a great robbery that the Daily Mail dubbed it as one of the greatest art robberies of all time. Um, it was in the early hours of Sunday, the 21st of April, 1946, and a black Rolls Royce crept across Heaver's drawbridge. And the local constabulary had actually clocked the car, uh, but believed it to be John Jacob Astor returning home, uh, which is undoubtedly why the vehicle was chosen. This was a really well-planned heist. And Heaver's night watchman, uh, who was a 50-year-old uh, gentleman called John Scalosis, was sprung upon by the robbers, bound up and gagged with the tablecloth and locked in the butler's pantry. And in just half an hour, the robbers were able to remove over 1,500 items from the rooms below, where Lady Violet Astor, her daughter, son-in-law and their three children were actually sleeping. So 15 minutes after the robbers left, the night watchman was able to break free and raise the alarm. But sadly, to no avail, 
nothing was ever recovered from this robbery. Um, it's quite an astonishing event, one that we believe can't happen anymore because we are incredibly well protected at Hever now. Absolutely. Our security is uh, incredible, but quite a, a daring feat on behalf of the robbers. And I mean, to just drive up to Hever across the drawbridge in a Rolls Royce and uh, and exactly. nab that extent uh yes it's quite astonishing i didn't realize it was that many items yes i mean it was absolutely vast they lost a huge amount i mean that does include items such as lady irene astor's uh fur coat yes um yes. which they seem most annoyed about but you know some some real treasures i mean amongst the stolen items was sadly a prayer book that belonged uh, to Amberlyn, which is uh, a real tragic loss to us at hever for obvious reasons two 16th century illuminated psalters a rare louis the 16th snuff box and uh, along with all of Astor's snuff box collection, um, there was a unique dagger belonging to Henry VIII, a signet ring that belonged to Charles I, a miniature of Lady Hamilton, and in fact, a huge number of miniatures were stolen that day. But of course, perhaps most pertinently to your podcast, and rather tragically, a small prayer book with gold class decorated with rubies that once belonged to Elizabeth I was taken. So yes, unfortunately, 1946... And that absolute treasure was taken from Hever, unfortunately. So, goodness, what an yes. extraordinary addition to this already extraordinary story about a remarkable item. I am actually, as you know, we sent lots of messages back and forth. I was completely and utterly gobsmacked by how we managed to to sort of find where it had been for another. 40 or so years uh, that's it's right quite, yeah. it's quite extraordinary and just the the scale of the robbery and it, it sounds like something out of a Hollywood film to me doesn't it it's just wow and I remember I had a little giggle when I read about the Rolls Royce until of course I realized oh okay they were trying to to pretend that they were one of the Astors arriving or leaving or yeah I think it's an you know an extraordinary conclusion to what an amazing story that that William yourself have discussed and but I, I'm hoping that we've got a little warmer on the cold case, as it were. So, yes, we've uh, clawed back a few years. And, and I do live in hope that one day many of these items will be returned to the Astor family. You know, we've been unfortunate to lose a fair few items over the years during the Astor's ownership. And uh, it would be lovely to be able to locate them. Um, I think the biggest tragedy is, had the item remained at Hever, although it had gone into a private collection and obviously out of the, the reach of researchers who, who really weren't sure who purchased it, of course, Hever opens up to the public in the 60s. So this treasure would have been on display. I mean, you know, researchers would be able to, to access it. So yes, it's uh, a rather heartbreaking, to be honest. It is. It's a, a quite a, an exciting, but at the same time, a heartbreaking twist to the story. And so we have at the moment, the one copy in the British Library that remains the one and only out of apparently 40 copies. So there are still another 39 copies to find, as well as the original, which just sounded like it was an exceptional treasure with those Hilliard portraits. And, and whether if there's some discussion about Perhaps Elizabeth didn't author the uh, the prayers, but that really, to me, doesn't matter. I think it's still so extraordinary. And I hope, like you on that one day, it comes up along with the 
Anne Boleyn prayer book. So before I let you go, do we know anything about the appearance of that one? Um, we don't know exactly uh, what it looked like. However, we may, may have a few leads on that right. in terms of previous cataloguing of it. Um, so Alison and I are very much hoping to be able to visit a few archives once uh, it's safe to do so. And yeah, we're very much hoping to glean a bit more information about that because as you know, there are few and far between books that belong to Anne, although they are the sort of chief sort of fabric of what is left of Anne. Uh, books are obviously very important to Anne Boleyn. But yes, that's right at the top of the list of the things that I would love to get back uh, and to see, um, because um, it, it did have this legend attached to it, that it was the book that accompanied her to the scaffold. We have a number of books which have that claim. Um, so uh, and she obviously didn't take a library with her to to her death. But anything that's connected to Anne would be of huge interest to the community and to Heaver. And yes, it, it may shed light that uh, on her life that is, is sadly masked at the moment. So yes, that's high on the priority of, of items that I would like to see from that heist. Uh, but I have to say the Elizabeth book is right up there as well now. Absolutely. Okay, well, we'll have to keep our fingers and toes and everything else crossed that by some miracle, it turns up again at some point. I'm certainly hoping for that, Owen. And thank you so Absolutely. much for coming back on just to, to kind of wrap this incredible story up. I just, you know, I'm still kind of on a high from it. You could probably hear it, the listeners in my <laughs> voice. It did make me very excited because it, again, and I've said this so many times on the podcast, it does show that things do turn up and, you know, we get little bits of information that we thought we knew nothing about and, and it's so exciting. And I suppose now, and of course, I did contact William Aslett again to, to let him know. And he was very excited. And there will be a follow-up article to his paper that I mentioned in the episode uh, where he will basically wrap up the story and, and just explain the new information that we have, because we are quite sure it is the same book because of those details that Owen has given us. So he will be doing that. And I'm sure we'll be kept up to date with any new findings to do with that. But it has been just so wonderful. And thank you, Owen, for being a part of it. You're most welcome. It's an absolute privilege as always. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music> <laughs>